Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 192. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, joined by my co-host, John White, at B Journeyman. Hey John, how's it going? Hey Nick, I'm doing great. Just want to remind everybody that we are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be subscribing. If you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. This week is a part two of our series with Brett Hill. But to know what's going to happen this week, you should probably go back and listen to what happened last week in episode 191. We talked to Brett about his early career. He was a tinkerer with technology. He became a technical trainer, caught a technology wave super early, and he worked for Microsoft doing a number of different things. One of the coolest things in that episode is he decided to own the space for Internet Information Services and really built a deep expertise and he talks about how to how you might decide what you want your area of expertise to be he moved through the transition to online services like office 365 microsoft 365 and what that transition was like both inside and outside the company and then we talked about his pivot into tech marketing but this week there's a different pivot coming isn't there john yeah absolutely i think we got to uh, listen, or at least I got to listen because I wasn't at the record. I had some uh, stuff going on with the uh, power at the house. But, you know, there's a really interesting conversation that happened. The overall, you know, theme of this second half of the discussion was mindfulness and Brett's kind of move away from the technology in- industry and starting a coaching business and mindfulness. It's I mean, I had an interesting like gut reaction because I think you and I were talking about this before we started recording, but things like mindfulness are easy to dismiss in the tech world, you know, kind of, it doesn't feel like hard science, but then, you know, I was thinking about it a little bit and I went, well, I guess discussing concentration, like what we, uh, you know, did seven episodes on Cal Newport's, uh, deep work, same type of thing. It, it could be easily dismissed as something that's like, oh, that's fluffy when it was not fluffy, right? It was very, very definitely like concrete ideas and practices. So, you know, really fascinating to listen to. And I'd be interested in hearing other people's reactions to to this discussion of mindfulness. I, I'd be interested to hear whether, you know, just the topic like kind of has you know, a uh, like a fundamental gut reaction of like, oh, I'm just going to not listen to this one. But I, I also really, I think that there was something later later in the episode, he talked about the body as a biological host machine and discussed what virtualization would mean in that context. And yeah, it was, it was a great analogy, you know, about, you know, attention and like what it is that you view as yourself and what that context is in mindfulness. So looking forward to having everybody listen to that rather than me ramble on about it. So without further delay, episode 192 with Brett Hill.
back to that mindfulness practice you mentioned earlier, Brett. You were studying mindfulness, meditation, somatics. At what point did the scales tip over and that actually became more interesting than the technology you were working on? Well, I have to say, to me, it was always more interesting. It's just that the job is hard to leave. It's because, you know, it's kind of fun and tech jobs, they don't pay badly if you get the right kind of job. And so it's kind of hard to just walk away from it. But I was always more interested in interpersonal connection, consciousness raising, you know, being helping people be more real and integrated beings was really I felt like where my real strength was. So in a certain way, I kind of felt like I was playing my B game all this time. And eventually, you know, I'd, I'd done it a long time. And so I finally decided, well, if I'm going to do this other piece, which was calling me more and more, I got to do it because, you know, life doesn't last forever. Uh, so I had a long career in tech and I said, you know, I just said, I've, I've I've got to run this base, as, as my wife likes to say, run your bases. You know, so I have to run this base. So, so I decided to uh, start focusing on helping people in a very direct, you know, one-on-one, one-to-many way. And at what point do you feel confident enough to start helping people and getting paid for it? Because I imagine that's probably a, an interesting decision point. Like, I'm really interested in this. I want to help people. How do I know if they'll pay me to help them? Well, right. I mean, you have to, it it's a, was a really big shift because internally it came from, the, the cool thing about technology is you can demonstrate a truth. You can say, yeah, if you flip this bit, this thing happens. And it's demonstrable that you know what you're talking about. But if I tell somebody, if you learn to work with your breath, you'll make your life a lot better. They have to believe you first. And I can't demonstrate that for them objectively. They have to try it to know. And then if they try it and go, okay, see, I'm taking a breath and it's not working. So I don't believe you. Or I tried that last year. Or I tried that when I was seven or whatever. You know, there's like some idea in their head about why it won't work. And they, it could be that they're wired in such a way where it doesn't. That does happen. But for the vast majority of people, that's solid advice. So it's very hard to convince people of that kind of, of a neurological. It's a neurological fact. If you, like the, the SEALs, the Navy SEALs, they do this box breathing. You've maybe heard of that. And because it affects the amygdala, calms your nervous system down, and you're going to be a better warrior when you're calm. And guess what? You're going to be a better person. You're going to make better decisions. You're not going to say things that you regret so much. You're going to see opportunities for solutions that you miss otherwise. And those are often better solutions than you would otherwise find. So the, the scope of the impact is, I, I can't overstate it. It's so powerful and so impactful that if people knew, they would, everyone would be doing it. And, some, and that's the mission that I'm on these days is to help people wake up to the opportunity that's just right at their feet. And the name of your business is Language of Mindfulness? Is that accurate? It's actually the Mindful Coach Method. Okay. The Mindful Coach Method. It was the Language of Mindfulness about a month ago, but I just literally pivoted this last month because 
I wanted to have something that was a little more direct about what I'm doing. I've taken all this learning that I've done for so, so many years and crafted a process that if people do it, it will help them. And there's a lot of things that work. You know, you could take traditional mindfulness training, you could take traditional meditation training. Well, traditional, there's a lot of forms of meditation. And those things will definitely help. This particular process is about, it's about helping people discover their own natural native resourcefulness and really, really grounding in that. Almost like if you could wave a magic wand and say, I want you to speak your personal truth. Who are you? What's important to you? What matters to you? And I want you to act and speak from that place all the time. The question is, why don't people do that? Wouldn't, wouldn't Good we question. Be, yeah, wouldn't we be better off? Well, we don't because we get hurt. The world resists sometimes. The world things happen to people. You know, you get slapped by your your parents because they're mean. And when you say, "Mom, I want to go to the fair," and she reaches over and goes, "Whack! How dare you? We don't make enough money for you. What makes you think you're so privileged?" And so what do you learn as a little kid? It's like I, I have to keep my hopes and dreams to myself. Because I, my my dreams are a problem, right? That's true. That happens enough. You would probably internalize that. Exactly. Yeah. And so suddenly you're 35 and you're going, I want to, every time I start to reach out for something I wish, I start to contract. I start to feel like something bad's going to happen. Why? Because somatically you're feeling, internally you're feeling expansive and somatically you're expecting to be whacked. And just define that for people when we say somatically. I mean, in your body, right? So it's kind of like, You've ever been on a roller coaster, right? Oh, yeah. So what happens whenever you sit in the next roller coaster you're in? You haven't started yet, but you sit in the seat. What, what are you experiencing? little anxiety, anticipation. A little anxiety because your body is remembering what's about to happen, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, you're not actually riding around the roller coaster yet. You're not experiencing, but your body is offering up that memory. And so those things get wired together. Roller coaster means shake, rattle, and roll. It's going to be exciting and weird. My heart, I'm going to tighten up a little bit. I'm going to brace myself for an experience. It could be exciting and a little scary. But as, as, as we grow, we encounter overwhelming obstacles to our natural expansiveness, our natural growth process, like the one I just named. There are many, many, many forms, and they're not all bad. And they're all not all because somebody whacks you. Um, for example, let's say you grow up in a family where there's uh, a lot of kids and there's not enough food. Your parents are loving as they can be, but there's just not enough food at the table. So what goes on? You got 10 kids at the table and there's not enough food for everybody. What's going on in the minds of those children? What kinds of decisions do they make about the world? There's not enough here for everybody. How do I balance what I need versus what my family needs? Those are tough, tough choices. Or I better take my stuff first so I'll get it. Right? That is a possibility. You might organize around, I'm going to get mine, right? And it's important. <laughs> it matters, right? Sure. Or you could organize around, I need to have small needs so that there's enough for others. So I'm going to minimize my needs. Now, fast forward that a decade, two decades later, and someone comes up to you and says, 
how are you doing at the job? Is everything going okay? And what's happening inside is that you're really hurting and you just go, oh yeah, everything's fine. Because you're minimizing your needs. Because you don't believe that it's okay for you to actually have needs and to speak about them. Now, obviously this is like transported learning, right? It's like the child's learning into an adult scenario. And, but that's the way, that's the way our neurology works. We don't, we aren't objective machines. And we think we are. That's a whole other conversation about the coloration of consciousness and how nothing really comes to you unbiased in a way. It's really a whole other conversation about our neurology. So I spent a lot of years studying how all this works with people and trying to get somewhere with it. How'd that conversation go with whatever boss you had at the time when you said, listen, I'm leaving the company because I want to go and, and focus on this practice and helping people full time? Well, I didn't have to volunteer. There were, there, were, there were some natural inflection points, like at Microsoft, there was a natural inflection point because I was hired as the IIS technical evangelist. And the way they were organized and what they didn't tell me at the time is that, yeah, you can be the IIS technical evangelist as long as we have an IIS server in development, right? So they were moving from one version uh -huh. to another. And as soon as they release it, they don't want an evangelist for the one they already have. They want the one for this either brand new or about to come. So it's not like sustaining evangelism, so to speak, in, at least at this company. So at that point, I had to find a new job. That's when I moved on to uh, online services because online services was the new cutting way, cutting edge. And so once that got released, there was a whole other wave of assimilation. And at that point, I decided to, to leave. So it was just sort of like if you don't find another position, then you're effectively not here anymore. So I just opted for that. Well, I, I think what I'm referring to is that eventually you, I think you had to resign from a company to go and, and start your business, basically. Well, there was a the situation, like I said, at Microsoft where I didn't really resign. It's just the job went away. And so it kind of like they don't they don't fire you. You sort of volunteer to lay off and they're happy that you do because they they don't have to mess with it in a certain way. And so I kind of didn't get the deal that I wanted from them in a certain way. So it was a great experience for me at that point. And so I moved on to Riverbed and some other things. And then Riverbed went through a big transformation and the whole technical marketing department got um, collapsed. And at that point, it was a decision point for me to just do something else. So I got hired by another company in Redmond to help write more Microsoft content. And then they had a pre-COVID sort of collapse as well. And so suddenly oh, I'm no. like in the, in the COVID unemployed workforce. So that's when I made my pivot. Ah, okay. That makes sense. So it was either go back into tech or transition. So I just took that opportunity to transition. Challenges as opportunity. Makes sense. When we say mindfulness, what kind of misconceptions would you say people have about that term? Well, there are many. Let's just start with a lot of people think it's something woo-woo. You know, they think it's like we're talking about, oh, you have to you know, be a Buddhist or believe in past lives or whatever. It's like, it's really none of that. So that's, that's one. The other is that it takes a lot of sitting down and meditation. You have to meditate uh, for, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour every day. That's also a misconception. Another is... It's about stopping your thoughts. Thoughts are bad and you need to get rid of them. That's another misconception. So there's a lot of misconceptions. There's 
a kernel of truth in all of those things in a way, but they're blown out of proportion to the degree that uh, they're used as an excuse to not engage. And I can just tell you that the number one thing that you can do to improve the quality of your life and the life of those around you is to have some kind of a commitment to a mindfulness practice. The number one thing, unless it's like health, you know, and like you can't, you, you need more insulin to stay alive, you know, but if you, if you, if you're hovering above baseline, then start a meditation, but it's going to help your career. It's going to help your relationships. It's going to help every aspect of your life because you're talking about your brain here, folks. You're talking about the executive function of your brain. The, the newest part of our neurology is this, this executive function part of the brain. And that's where the, the potential to be mindful about your experience exists. And we're not very good at it. And that's the reason it's hard for people. And that's the reason they stop because it's hard. But the advice really is keep doing it. Persist. It's like trying to, uh, the best analogy I have, or one I use frequently, is just like riding a bike, right? You get on a bicycle, nobody knows how to ride a bike initially. It takes a while. And guess what? When you fall off, it can hurt. So do you just fall over and go, oh, man, I tried riding a bike. I can't do it. It doesn't work. It hurts. This is not for me. And there are plenty of people that that's true for. But if you persist just a little bit longer, you can actually begin to manage it somewhat. And if you persist a little bit longer, pretty soon you're cruising the town in a way you couldn't before. And now you're a bigger being because you can go places you didn't go before. And you're having experiences you couldn't have before because you persisted. This is no different in the sense that begin to do this practice of being more mindful. Then the more you do it, the easier it gets because your brain learns what what you're trying to achieve and builds neurology around that so that it's easier for you to do. Would you be willing to share with listeners what your pra practice is, kind of how you started doing it for yourself? Well, you know, it's kind of a situation where what I do probably isn't the thing that people should be doing. Because I'm in a different stage of my development. I see. What, but I will say some of the things that were the most powerful was to learn a technique I call body sensing. Body sensing. I tell this to everybody that will listen. This is a very powerful, potent addition to your life. Find something that you like that's like automatic and easy. Let me just ask you, what, what's something that in your life, when you see it, you just kind of light up. You go, oh, wow, that's great. It's something simple and easy. My daughter. There you go, right? So you see your daughter and you go, wow, that's just great. In that moment, when you're going that, oh, wow, experience, what's happening in your, what kind of sensation is? Do you mind me asking you these questions like this? No, I don't mind. What What's happening in my mind? Oh, wow, she's growing up. I can't believe she's, you know. Almost 13. And yeah. In seventh grade so now. So what's that, what's that feel like in your body? What are you feeling? Uh, maybe a little bit of anxiety. Like she's not going to be here with, you know, in our home, like a long, long time. She's probably lived oh, with yeah. us longer than she will 
probably not going to live here for 12 more years. Right. Probably going right. to be less so, than that before she's out of the house. So there's like and, a... Oh, I need to pay for <laughs> college or, <laughs> oh. or, or a car. So there's a lot of... Uh, so right on the heels of that, you have, oh, this is so great. And I'm, there's, you, there's an awareness in you that this isn't going to last. Yeah. And so those are, in my world, my, I, I'm noticing, I would say that those are wired up together in you, right? And since it's something that you appreciate and it's not going to last. Now, I'm going to speculate, mm -hmm. just openly speculate here, and you, that you know something about things that are important to you that don't last. Sure. Because, and that's why these are so close to it. Can make to give you another way. You see your daughter and it just fills you with this feeling of love and presence. And that other thing doesn't happen. It's just more like you're just happy that she's your daughter and it's the best feeling in the world. This mm -hmm. other network about, oh, this is going to go away, doesn't fire. And I'm calling it it's a neural network. It's just a, an associative memory. I'm speculating wildly here that, that there might be some fear in you that the things that you really appreciate could be gone from your life and that those are very closely related yeah. experiences. So that's based on my lost a lost a parent a few years ago. So, I mean, that probably affects the way go. I think about right. yeah. things like this. And so in my work, I would help to, in that moment where you're seeing your daughter, I would try to encourage you to take a breath and just let it be good. Okay. Yeah. And when and notice, just say, yes, oh, here's this other thoughts that I have about, and they're totally legit thoughts. There's not bad or wrong, right? Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's also there too, but but making a choice and saying, that's part of my world too. I have these concerns. But the reason I have these concerns is because I care so much. And just letting yourself yeah. be in the richness of that moment and experiencing what that feels like. So another example might be, and this is true for me, I'll step out of my house. So you talk about a practice I have. And I look at the sky. Mm -hmm. I love the sky. I look at it and it's like, I, my mind is blown because I look at it and I and I think I have a thought that's miles and miles and miles of gas and it's gorgeous the way the light reflects off of it and it's just incredible that we're on this earth and the sky is an amazing experience every single day and I step out and I look at it and go oh wow and then when I notice that oh wow if you really pay very close attention and slow it down, right in that moment, you're not thinking anything. You're just going, whoa, right? It's just this, whoa. That moment is a pristine moment of mindfulness. You're not thinking. You're just directly connected to your in-the-moment experience. And you can have that as many times a day as you wish. There's nothing between you and appreciating the sky or a tree or your daughter or a dog or a color or a sound or the way a body moves or a painting or pick. There's so many things that you can give yourself the pleasure of having if you just permit it. I like that. Yeah. And so the practice, part of my practice, my method is first, let's just take an inventory of the things that you like. And we're going to create a practice around letting yourself really steep. I don't mean like dramatically go, I'm in bliss about it. Not making drama out of it, but just let it be what it is. And just letting yourself have those moments. 
because they're pure moments of mindfulness that you can have time and time and time again. Now, your brain will notice, ah, he's making an effort to pay extra close attention to these moments. So I'm going to light them, more of them up. Your, your, your neurology begins to learn, oh, you're looking for beautiful moments. Well, there's what, well, there's what, well, there's what. And they start to just surface. And pretty soon you're adding lots of these really great moments to your life. And they don't cost you anything. You don't have to subscribe to a cult. You don't have to meditate for a million years. You don't have to believe anything other than your direct experience. And taking time yes. to notice. Taking time to notice and deciding to stay with that experience on purpose for an extra three seconds. And that's the magic. To notice that you're lighting up and then say, oh, this is one of those moments that Brett was talking about. And just stay in it for an extra three seconds and just notice what it feels like to be there. It's sort of like they say, take time to smell the rose or you taste something really good, right? And you go back for a second dip. You know, it's kind of like, oh, that was good. I'm going to go for in that again, right? It's like, it's that. It's like going back again. I'm just going to hang out with this for a minute. I don't even say a minute, just 10 seconds. The magic is making the choice to do it. The conscious choice to do it—that's that's the that's what makes it a mindfulness practice. That you're bringing your your will, your a conscious choice to. I'm choosing. To, I'm choosing this experience. The power of this cannot be overstated. It's exceptionally powerful. Now, there's a lot more to it. It goes places beyond this. Isn't this isn't just feel good about your day and avoid all your problems at all. Right. This is just step one. Step one, creating a little space for yourself and taking time to enjoy ordinary, maybe even just ordinary things in your busy life that you don't right now. Yeah, that's right. It's like I'm I'm worried about what I'm going to, the script that I've got to write at work and I'm not sure how I'm going to get it done. But right now I'm seeing a beautiful sunset and I'm not working on the script. I'm, I'm just... Why take that away from yourself? And in fact, I would argue that by giving yourself this kind of spaciousness, when you get ready to work on your technical projects, you have more resources available, more creativity and resilience available to see solutions that you didn't see before. And I remember one of the things you mentioned back at uh, Don Jones's conference, Amp Navigator, last year was about using some of these mindfulness techniques in interviews. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be really interesting to explore maybe a couple of those tips and, and how you landed upon how you were acing those interviews. Well, right. It's really fun to be who I am in an interview because I feel like uh, I turn everything around on people and they don't even know. It's kind of like really kind of subversive mindfulness in a way kind of I, I don't I hate to say it that way but it's almost like you walk into the room and you're listening to them very closely right so I'm hearing what they want in a person mm-hmm. and I'm not shape-shifting myself to be that but I'm measuring my answers against the things I know they're listening for and if I can if I can do that authentically and honestly there's a good fit for me if I have to bend myself a little too much to kind of fit into the mold of what they're looking for, whether they're asking for it or not, then I can't do it. So Now, to answer your question, one of the things I like to tell people is to think about it from the other side of the room. 
a lot of people are worried a lot about what are they going to think of me? Am I going to present well? And I'm going to ask people to first think about what is it like to be the interviewer? Now, I've been in these conversations where you've got a day job, right? You're the you're the technical evangelist or you're the whatever you're doing. You're the IT pro in the data center. You're the scripter, whatever you're doing. And they say, oh, we want you to be on an interview loop for somebody. Well, you've got your regular job that you actually get rated to do and evaluated on. And suddenly you're getting called into interview after interview with people. So what you're hoping is that the person that you're talking to is the right person. You're wanting the person that you speak with to be perfect for the job. And so as the interviewee, when I walk into the room, it's a complete mindset shift if I realize that they want me to be the right person. They really do because they've got other things to do. <laughs> and if you're not, they just have to interview more people, right? Right. And they've got, you know, that takes away from their actual day job, except for the HR people. And that's all they do all day. right? But the actual program managers or group leaders or whoever you're doing interviews with, they really want you to be the right person. So you're they're looking for you to give them information that excludes you. You're already dealt in. So it's yours to lose rather than yours to win in a lot of cases. I imagine most people don't think of it that way. Precisely, right? So you walk in the room and you and, and they're thinking, I hope he's the guy. I really do. Or the girl, you know. And it's like, okay, that's a complete mindset difference. So all you have to do is go in and figure out what they want and be that person. And they'll tell you, we're looking for this and this, this. Oh yeah. And you you give them examples of how you've done stuff or make sure you understand that you can fill the shoes of what they're after and also understand the context of the job. That's something that I got from Microsoft is context. You have to understand that the role that you're in, you connect with other teams, you connect with other people, and your ability to do that is a big influence. Remember that when you're going to work for somebody, your job in some ways is to help your manager look good in their interviews, right? Because they're sure. going to be held accountable for you and your performance. And so if you show up in a way where you're going to help them meet their marks, they're going to want you on their team. And a lot of times you just have to ask. And so when the time comes to they say, well, do you have any questions? I have a quick question. Question is, let's just say that everything works out. The powerful part of that question is it asks them to imagine you in the role. Right. So in, the, in their head, they're thinking, okay, so let's just say that we said yes. Very, very subtle act there to get them to imagine the success of them saying yes, because that neurologically cues them up to do that. Then you say, what would success look like in my role a year from now? Then they will tell you, well, that I would imagine that you would do this and you would say that. And so they tell you straight up what they think the person in this job should be doing. And then all you have to do is be a person that they believe can do those things. I like that. Yeah. And we'll put the we'll put the article that you wrote about mindfulness and communication skills getting you jobs in the show notes because I think that's a fantastic one that people can go back and reference. As we were scheduling the recording, we had an email conversation about mindfulness and IT professionals and you came up with this really interesting analogy about virtual machines and hosts and how the uh we have subcells with independent beliefs and motivations. Can you just expand on that one real quick? 
Oh, sure. I mean, this is this place of my true geek nature in terms of being, you know, sort of an inner architect as well as a network architect. So I subscribe to this notion that most people, including me, were kind of fractured in a way. Like we're not born that way. But remember, we were talking about how people can get wounded and things that can happen to you. So in those moments, a piece of you kind of peels off. You become someone who, like I said before, you, your natural organic tendency would be to like shine and radiate your enthusiasm. But if somehow if you learn that that's not okay, a piece of you has to get shunted away. It's not okay for me to be enthusiastic or funny or happy or whatever, whatever's good. Something that was good and should be celebrated and encouraged becomes toxic because of your context, not because of you. And so that creates a a split in us in a way. And we spend our lives in a way trying to reintegrate these splits. So there's an analogy here to virtual machines in the sense that we are, we are a, uh, we're a host, right? And so within us, there are multiple, there are kind of semi-partitioned selves. There's a, there's a part of us that wants to expand and be happy and great. And there's another part of us that says, well, you have to watch out for that. And then there's a part that's managing the interplay between these things. So you have a scheduler. You know, VMware server, right? You've got a VXX, VSX server, and it's kind of, you've got all these virtual machines on it. And it's managing all the interplay between all of these various operating systems, some of which all of, and all of them are competing for resources, but they don't know they're competing with they're each self-contained. So it's sort of like, and if, if you don't think that you're a fractional being, ask yourself, is the you that wakes up on January 2nd this, and not following through on your New Year's Eve commitments, the same one that made those commitments? It's like, oh, this year I'm really going to hit the gym. I swear I'm going to do it. I'm really going to do it. January 2nd, it's like, who was that guy that made all those commitments? I, you know, it's like, I don't, that wasn't me, right? So that's... Can't be me, the, right? Right. So, okay. So in that case, the virtual machine that has this, I'm going to get healthy agenda is not the same one as the one that's like, uh, no, I'm not going to do that right now. But you're competing for resources in the, in the sense that there's only one body. It can only be either in the gym or not. And so there's your time slicing between the focus points and the operating system is managing that time slice. Yeah, I really like that analogy. And all the things we've talked about around mindfulness and somatics, what I hear you saying is this is a way to improve your focus for those big tasks that create the big value in the world, doing the, yeah. the what we might call deep work. Well, it is deep work. It's like... To continue using the the VM analogy, the problem is that people switch into the VMs and they think that's who they are. Just like each virtual machine thinks it's the whole server, right? right. It thinks it's got all this memory and I've got a disk subsystem. It doesn't realize it's sharing with all these other virtual machines. It thinks it's the only occupant. Well, our brains are the same way. We switch between these kind of fractional identities in a way, and we think that they're the only being, a, we have an experience of being a unified individual, but we clearly are in conflict with each other. That's why we do things like that are unhealthy for ourselves. You know, it's like there's a me that wants to smoke and there's a me that knows that I shouldn't. Two different beings in a way. Not, And I don't mean like 
you know, completely separated segmented identities to the degree. But there's a host operating system that can be aware of both of those things at the same time. Mindfulness is the process of giving the host operating system more attention. You don't, it doesn't suck your attention point into one of those subsystems. Instead, you pull it back out and you go, oh, that virtual machine is taking up too much RAM. I'm going to give it less attention and I'm going to release that into uh, uh, free memory so that everybody else can be smooth here. And we're all going to, all my parts are going to operate together more harmoniously this way. So you're really, but but we're biological machines and not actual machines. And so you have to create the capacity to do that within yourself. And the more fractionalized you are, the harder it is. That's a great point, Brett. And I think that's kind of the, one of the mic drop moments we've had tonight. It's very good, very good discussion. Are there any other resources that you might recommend for folks, whether it be books, podcasts that you or others do? To, to help them get started? Well, there are a lot of places to go to get started with the mindfulness practice. I mean, um, my website at bretthill.coach is, I've got some uh, a thing called starting a mindfulness practice there with a basic meditation you can get started on. It's, I say basic, but please don't underestimate the power these things have. I just can't say enough how important this work is. That if you're not doing it, then you're really, you're a 16 core CPU operating on four cores, you know? And it's like, you really need, you have the opportunity to light it all up. You just have to do the work that it takes. And so it's, it's really important because that's, that's really how we become the people that we can be. And the only, and if we don't do that, we can't create the world that we want to be in and, and the relationships that are, sustain us and and help us be happy people basically right effectively yeah so to, to get started you know the basic meditation practice you can look up the classic masters like john cabot zinn stuff there's some uh, good books out there Let's see there's there's some free stuff that you can get from the mindfulness awareness research center they have uh, quite a bit of content that you can just access that's completely free. Oh, cool. And they have trainings as well. They have an app that you can download and, uh, and use and stuff. There's, the, the important thing is not so much the way that you go, but that you go. You know, it's like you have to get on the bike and ride the bike. And so there are a lot of places to learn how. So my, my deepest wish is that you just begin and don't stop unless – it's contraindicated for you. There's also a whole conversation to have about when mindfulness practice, meditation practices don't work for people because of PTSD and some other stuff like that. So it's okay to be uncomfortable when you're doing this practice. It's not okay to be terrified. And I think all you're suggesting listeners try is 5, 10, maybe 15 minutes a day. Yeah. That and the practice I mentioned earlier, the light me up, like, if you don't do the meditation, I, that's the best way to, to, to practice, but look at, like the breath meditations, like bringing back to your breath. So, you know, you just pay attention to your breathing. You don't judge anything. You just pay attention to the fact that you're breathing. What does it feel like? Take a breath, relax, take a breath, relax, pay attention to your breathing. And in about 30 seconds or less, you'll start thinking about something else. That's totally legit. That's the way it works. We don't have enough 
material in the prefrontal cortex of the brain to sustain that attention. The amount of, you can think of it as like a, a capacitor. It's got a certain amount of energy. And as soon as that energy drains, you can't hold your attention anymore. So you relax and suddenly you're imagining something and that capacitor starts to fill back up. And suddenly you go, oh, I'm not paying attention to my breathing anymore. That moment is the mindful moment. That's the, that's the moment that you came out of the virtual machine into the host operating system. Oh, I'm not breathing in. I'm not paying attention to my breath anymore. Go back to my breath. Doing that over and over and over and over again without getting frustrated about it. I'm no good at this. This sucks. This is boring. I hate it. Let all that be true. Just notice, oh, there's a part of me that hates it. There's a part of me that's frustrated. There's a part of me that thinks it's stupid. Just get back on the body. Because eventually what happens is the spaciousness begins to open up in you and you start to realize somebody says something to you and instead of reacting, suddenly you have a moment that doesn't, where the, the hardwired reactivity isn't so hardwired. And there's a pause in there and you begin to notice in that pause, this is a, a famous quote, in that pause, there's, a, there's an opportunity to choose. And in that choice, there's freedom. So this is, in the end, mindfulness is about freedom. It's about the, having the potential to make a different choice than the automatic one that you would make if you're not mindful, a better choice. Yes, sir. That's excellent. Well, Brett Hill, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate the great conversation and guidance. And if people want to reach out to you, where's the best place to find you? Uh, BrettHill.coach. Here's my website, and you can email me if you like as well. At, uh, I'll just use the easy one, bretthill at outlook.com. I'm happy to talk shop and uh, see if I can help you in any way. Yeah, and it looks like you have a newsletter on your website and some great blog posts. So I would encourage any listeners to check it out and, and sign up for the newsletter. Great. Yeah, it would be fabulous. Thank you so much. Interesting that transitions can present an, a decision point for us, but they can actually be real opportunities. In Brett's case, he was talking about when things shifted and new technologies came out inside Microsoft, basically had to find a new role for himself or leave the company because the technical evangelist needs to focus on the new hotness. And at one point, it was just easier for him to leave. And it was kind of a similar thing at Riverbed. In that case, they made the team smaller, and it made it easier for him to go ahead and dive right into his business full-time instead of it just being something that was really interesting, maybe even more interesting than tech. Yeah. Now that I think back on it, like when we recorded the introduction, I kind of glossed over that transition away from, you know, technology jobs and into being essentially an entrepreneur, you know, starting one's own business and, and working for oneself like that. That's a big transition in and of itself. But I guess if you're going to have a background in something and what your new business is focused on, like mindfulness has got to be like, hopefully one of the, the top things that, you know, you'd be uh, working in when you're actually 
doing that and have the space to to be mindful about being a, a newly minted entrepreneur. Well, what's interesting is, and we, we really glossed over it in that first interview, but he talked about coming out of the record industry and owning a series of record stores. So he kind of had the entrepreneurial spirit or background, and it wasn't just something way off the reservation. I don't even know how to do this. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point. Something to go back and talk to him about, I guess. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we could have talked for four hours, probably much like every guest we've had. Right. And right. then it would be a 10 parter. <laughs> I hate to like come back to this thing and, and jump on it again, but that analogy of, you know, the self and distraction and the biological body, you know, as like a biological host machine with virtual machines and routing, you know, your attention, you know, between those virtual machines, I guess maybe now I'm extending the analogy, but that, that I just found that super fascinating, very, very useful. Like, you know, all of these things are always like just a way to imagine like how your brain works and it, you know, it doesn't perfectly fit any one uh, analogy, but it was, it was a really interesting framing device. Yeah. I liked that. And he came up with this just emailing us back and forth. Yeah. Which yeah. is great. But, I mean, that's, it's the, you know, the sign of a, a good instructor is, oh, yeah. you know, frame the topic in something that the person that you're talking to will understand. Even if it's imperfect, it's like get you 80% of the way there. Just the idea that that kind of embodied, like the whole goal of getting away from hardwired reactions to you know external stimulus and you know, it just reminds me of advice that i've gotten in the past to kind of do things consciously even if the conscious decision is like a bad behavior that you're trying to move away from i think the idea that i've had in the or you know some of the coaching that i've gotten is hey if you're going to you know delay doing something which could you know go under the the category of procrastination why not make a conscious and open decision that you're recording to not do the thing today as opposed to just shoving it out of your mind and and having it be the default like being mindful about what it is that you're doing and the decision that you're making and the implications of that decision is always better than having it be just like an unconscious consequence or um, spending energy not thinking about it and just have that be the default so it just really resonated with me. Yeah. And all these, we'll just call them tools or strategies, methodologies. I like what Brett said about there's no way for him to demo and let someone see the benefits. Like with software, you really have to experience it for yourself. I mean, Morpheus from the Matrix had it right. No one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Like, I think it's another one of those, like, barriers to, to starting a practice like this where you have to do so much of the difficult work work up front and not necessarily see the benefits and how it's going to, you know, benefit you personally until, you know, late in the game. Unfortunate. But I think that all we can really do is take a poll of people who have, you know, started a mindfulness practice in this case to see, um, hey, what are the benefits for you? Like, are you following through? What, if you take a step back, like, is it a net positive, net negative? You know, I think 
kind of like I did, uh, again, outside of the realm of this conversation, I asked you about morning pages, I think a few weeks back, whether that was something that you were still doing. And, you know, you, you told me the benefits that you were seeing from that. And it, you know, had like a, a very like, you know, profound impression on me about how you were, you know, continuing to do that and uh, what benefits you were seeing. I just thought that was really cool. And and that's, you know, you have to have people that you trust to, to be able to ask those things. So it's like Brett read the, the practice by Seth Godin and applied the same concepts to what he was sharing with us about mindfulness and starting a practice. Keep doing it. You know, Seth Godin said, keep shipping your work, keep riding the bike, keep doing the thing and the benefits will come. They just aren't immediate. Yeah. Yeah. On that point, there's a really good book out there called Peak Mind by Amishi Jha. I know I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but she studied the science of attention and worked with military groups and actually found that 12 minutes of a mindfulness practice per day improved decision-making of military personnel and had all kinds of other benefits for people that were that were doing it. You know, it wasn't a lot of time. That was sort of the magic number. Any more than that didn't necessarily make a greater return over time. But even some made a return. I can imagine that working up to 12 minutes of mindfulness might might take work. Like you couldn't just start out on day one and, and dive in and go, okay, I'm gonna, you know, here's you know a 12-minute block of mindfulness practice. A- any more than you could start out on like, day one and just like do 12 minutes of deep work you know of intense concentration or 12 minutes of swing dancing for people who <laughs> like that i know that i know that's not really your thing john but you know that was just an example i thought of yeah well um you know maybe people uh listeners of the podcast might not know this but yeah one of my my hobbies is swing dancing outside of uh outside of technology really? so man yeah. how, how did i just guess that i don't know hmm. yeah um, I think that if, if listeners go to uh, graph.nerd-journey.com, they'll see that there is not actually a swing dancing note. So uh, maybe, Sounds like a homework uh, assignment. Yeah, maybe that's something that we need to do and go back and see if it's ever been mentioned before. I kind of doubt it. Hmm. Just have to see. Yeah. Well, John, I think that's it for that segment and all the topics we had planned. Anything pop into your mind while we talked? Nope. Just a reminder again that we'd like people to subscribe and give us a pause review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore for John White at V Journeyman signing off. Adios. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. No, I don't like that. (laughs) Drive time, DJ. Drive time, DJ. Yeah. All right. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. No. What is going on here? You did the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait for you to listen back to this. Yeah, same. (laughs) I'm afraid I'm going to do it again. All right, here we go. 
Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey can... No. Like... Well, that was good. Like, you had you had dialed it back so that it was high energy, but it wasn't drive time DJ high energy. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get it to stop. <laughs> yeah. All right.